Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What. Today we've got Jim McDougall on and he's the Commercial Director at Outfield Technologies. Hi Jim. Hi Daniel, pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on Jim. Um, should we jump straight in? Do you want to tell everyone a bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I we set up Outfield here in Cambridge uh, several years ago now with the ambition of improving global food security and also reducing the environmental damage that's done in food production. Uh, around the world, there's obviously a growing need to have more food. And I know you've had some podcasts recently talking about exactly that. And there's also quite a lot of environmental damage done uh, by, by producing food, particularly around you know, soil erosion, use of pesticides, etc. Now, what we realized was that there's a huge gap between what technology is available in this space uh, and what's actually being used. Mm. You know, if, you, if you look at your iPhone, the incredible amount of technology in there that you can you know, keep track of what your heartbeat was doing every day off your Apple Watch. And yet people who are running multi-million dollar fruit growing businesses are doing everything with a pen and paper, right? Really? Yeah. Still to this day? <laughs> Uh, becoming a lot less so, but if you go back five years, I mean, we were certainly hearing reports of that. And if you wow. ring somebody and say, what did you spray last year? Uh, they'll get a book off the shelf behind them and uh, <laughs> hopefully someone wrote it down. Right? Wow. And that's not true everywhere, but it's certainly true mm. in a lot of places. And so that was really where we saw this huge opportunity to deploy emerging technologies like uh, aerial imagery and drones and also machine learning and data science to support growers, not to tell them what to do, but to help them do what they're doing already just more efficiently. Mm. So then let's talk a bit about your career personally before we get into outfield and, and agritech in general. Mm. How did how did this all start for you? Yeah, so uh, originally I uh, I got an engineering degree, uh, like like a lot of people that I know, um, and uh, immediately stopped being an engineer. I went off to become a consultant working in oil and gas doing uh, risk consultancy, so looking at fire oh, and explosion okay. engineering. Yeah, um, helping people in offshore oil platforms to not blow themselves up, and then often they ignore you, but that's okay. <laughs> it's a fascinating sector, really interesting. Did, did a lot of work internationally. Was very, very lucky with the work that I did uh, did in my early career. Um, and over time, though, I was spending a heck of a lot of time overseas, and uh, started sort of bringing my focus back home to the UK, where you know where I wanted to be mm. living. It's, it's very hard to have hobbies when you're overseas. Uh, you know, at short notice for six weeks and then uh, you have to drop everything. So um, in a similar role and with the same company, I took those same sort of risk-based skill sets and started applying it to private equity. So when a big firm is buying, say, you know, a bunch of oil companies, oil and gas rigs, they want to know what risks they're taking on and what status they're in. And so that was uh, a similar sort of role, but then working more in the financial sector, working more at the corporate level. Uh, and what that took me down towards was starting to look at more data about international trends on environmental social governance, mm -hmm. uh, looking at the pressures that we're seeing around things like food security, water usage, uh, you know, fertilizer use, all sorts of things. And also seeing, as I was saying earlier, what technologies were actually being deployed in the agricultural sector, which is to say, often not much. And at the same time, I was talking to my uh, my friend Ollie, uh, Ollie Hillborn, who wound up being uh, the other founder of Outfield. And he's a huge drone enthusiast. We went to university together. He got his aeronautical engineering degree and worked at an aerospace company for wow. uh, for several years. And so he was very familiar with what's possible with this technology, you know, what you can do with drones, what you can do with aerial imagery. And so we put our heads together and just saw, as I was saying earlier, this massive gap that we could fill. 
so we started out um, in Cambridge. We uh, spent spent the first couple of years uh, sort of working as consultants in the sector. Um, Ollie made the jump and went into it full time fairly early, and then I uh, I managed to follow him not long afterwards. And we were working providing machine learning and aerial imagery support to people like NIAB, who are the National Institute of Agriculture and Botany. Now they've got lots of projects around you know plant phenotyping and that sort of thing, where they'll send postdoctoral researchers into the field for a month at a time to go and count the leaves on plants. We thought there was a better way of doing it. So we, uh, we uh, started using drones and we got to experiment with all sorts of things whilst working for them. things like uh, multi-spectral imagery, looking at the wavelength of light that chlorophyll emits or looking at satellite data fixed between drones, ground-based systems. Now, more and more as we were doing that, we found ourselves getting dragged back to horticulture and in particular, um, permanent trees like you know apple orchards mm. and the reason for that is it's a very high value crop uh, a, a hectare of uh, of apples is worth about thirty thousand pounds whilst a hectare of wheat is worth about three thousand pounds wow and so yeah it's, it's exactly that and it's also very expensive to grow and it's uh it's very technically difficult uh they're big 3d structures and the growers you know a grower might have ten thousand trees in an orchard but he'll go and look at 10 or 15 of them to try and estimate what his yields will be. Mm. Now, it's uh, it's also true that apple orchards are uh, biennial, which means that an apple tree one year will produce a lot of fruit and the following year will produce not many. But it's also very unpredictable. And across the orchard, it's very hard to keep track of. So we found ourselves more and more applying these techniques to support fruit growers mm -hmm. in understanding what was really happening in their orchards allowing them to make interventions, which uh, increase their production, uh, allow them to be more efficient, allow them to spray less, reduce their costs, whilst also making more fruit. And the other bit that was really, uh, really fascinating to us was that the fruit markets around the world, they tend to sell their fruit starting about five months before they harvest it, which means these contracts are starting to get negotiated in May for wow. fruit that's only picked in October. They have to do it because uh, the supermarkets need to know what they're going to have. They need to bring it in from overseas if they're not going to have it. But the problem with this is, even on the day that they harvest, some growers are off by 10 or, you know, in a bad case, even 20% in their yield estimates. So telling them what they've really got and giving them a better gauge on what's happening across the orchard means that they can sell more, they can sell it in advance, they can have more guarantee of the quality of it, and they can make a lot more money. And that's really... What's uh, what's captured imagination is really driving the business now. Oh, that is that is just it's so cool. I I'm literally <laughs> I I started talking to to a few a few other companies in agritech and I'm I'm obsessed with it now. I think it's brilliant. You know, you're taking this really really ancient industry and you're pumping you know 21st century tech into it. Absolutely. That's incredible what you can do. So, what yeah. kind of technologies are you specifically using at Outfield to to help you achieve these these results? Yeah, so we've been so lucky with the trends that have been happening across this sector, uh, starting with the growers themselves, as you say, sort of applying uh, new technologies. If you go back even a decade, growers were incredibly skeptical about this and didn't want to be doing that. Um, but now growers are becoming ever more data focused and are more tech savvy. Um, and even things outside the industry like self-driving cars are giving growers the confidence that this technology is possible. You know, mm. If a car can drive itself around California, then you can probably get a robot to drive itself around the orchard. The um, technologies that we're deploying 
the, fir the first one that we really started on, this is probably a bad way to start a business, but we were very fascinated by drones and drone technology. Mm -hmm. And we really saw the benefits of, you know, quick, automated, uh, easy to deploy systems. And that technology is very much caught up with what we wanted to be doing. So now we use off-the-shelf drones, uh, like the DJI Mavic 2. Yeah. You can get one off of Amazon Prime in Peru or in Perth, Australia, by tomorrow morning if you want to. <laughs> uh, and so we don't touch any of the hardware. And it means that we're using RGB cameras, which have got incredible resolutions now. 24 megapixels comes as standard. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we used to build these ourselves, right? When, when we were first doing it, we built our own drones. And now it's just something that you can get uh, get like that for, for two grand. And, mm. um, and then where we really put the clever bit in is on the machine learning side. So then we've got a team here in Cambridge and also based uh, remotely around uh, around the world who are doing machine learning analysis of the imagery as it comes in. They segment the images. We look uh, look at a, a big chunk of the orchard. So we'll take a picture of maybe a hundred trees looking in from uh, above, but at the side. So you can mm. see the side wall canopy. Um, and we'll take a picture of, you know, a hundred trees at a time, segment out into each individual tree and then identify how many fruit we can see on that tree. <laughs> or early in the season how many blossoms we can see on the tree wow and we can do that starting several months before harvest when these contracts are still being negotiated uh to i mean right now we're telling growers and have just been telling growers about the variability across the orchards so, you know the southwest corner isn't doing so well uh there aren't enough fruit down there you want to change the regime of you know fertilizer that you're putting down there the northeast corner is doing too well and you'll need to strip some apples off there otherwise you'll come up with uh with too many small apples and they aren't as valuable and so that's the kind of data that our growers really really mean these you know these producers they do they get as excited as you do about these you know <laughs> these sort of you can go down to that kind of detail now i mean it's it's necessary i don't know if you agree it's necessary because we're going to have to feed a lot more people and you know we're going to have to produce more more high quality foods but they must still get so excited when you can come up with those kinds of, of analytics Absolutely. I'll tell you, it's a very mixed bag for anyone that's looking at getting into agriculture. Um, you know, there's a lot of tech skepticism, but rightly so, because a lot of people in this space, especially historically, but still now, have over-promised, under-delivered. And it's something that, you know, it's, it's a very Silicon Valley, you know, fake it till you make it kind of approach. And unfortunately, mm. in horticulture or in agriculture in general, you can't fake it. The yield will be what it will be. You can't pretend it has to work or it doesn't work. Mm. Um, and so there is definitely a lot of skepticism. However, uh, where our growers do get excited and where the industry gets excited is around those yield forecasts and around increasing that production mm. because it's something that they're thinking about all the time. Every day they're worried about, you know, what are my blossoms doing and what will my yield be? What am I spraying and what will my yields be? How are the fruit today and what will my yields be? So being able to inform that and uh, support them in managing that is, is absolutely critical. But the other thing that we were slightly surprised by uh, is that the growers are also quite progressive. Most of the ones that we know around management of the environment, they're okay. kind of hamstrung by what they can do because they have to be a business first, right? So mm. they have to produce apples. But they really genuinely are looking for solutions that allow them to support the environment and keep it safe. And that's because they live in it and they understand it better than you or I ever will.
Mm. You know, they're, they're very aware, acutely aware of the impact of not having enough bees, not having enough birds, of having you know wildflower groups that are taken out of uh, out of circulation because they live in it all the time. So we were we were pleasantly surprised how progressive a lot of the growers are. It's great to hear. I mean, I think that's something everyone's so focused on at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, think of things like carbon sequestration are uh, starting to become interesting topics in this space as well. Uh, you know, fr- uh, arable land and fruit land um, or horticultural land uh, sequester a lot of carbon. And there's a lot of money to be had there, but it's also very important for the planet. So hopefully over the next few years, that's something we can focus on too. Yeah. I mean, it all sounds great. But yeah. from your point of view, so agritech in general, um, you know, we talked about machine learning and, and development. But what are some of the crucial kind of skill sets you see uh, being required by the field in the coming years? Yeah, I, that's a really good question, actually. And it's, it's a fascinating sector at the moment because um, I don't want to say it's the Wild West, but there's a hell of a lot of opportunities out there and a lot of things that have never really been tried before. Mm. Now, the, the first thing I'd say is that the crossover between people who have got really in-depth agricultural experience and the people who understand uh, high tech, you know, machine learning or mm-hmm. uh, you know, satellite technology, remote remote sensing, all sorts of things, mm-hmm. is quite small. And indeed, there's also not much crossover between things like venture capital and agriculture as well. It's just traditionally not a space that has seen that. Now we okay. are starting to see a turnaround on that. Uh, people are starting to invest in you know clean tech and agri tech, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it certainly has been a, a long time coming. Um, and so because of that, like the, the most important thing is not so much the skills that we need as much as how we marry them up. Uh, because with all the will in the world, you know, growers I know who know more about apple orchards than I ever will can tell you things by standing in an orchard that you and I would just never understand <laughs> aren't necessarily very good at piloting drones or calibrating hyperspectral cameras. Right? Mm. So, so, uh, so that, that's definitely been a bit of a challenge. But the skills that, uh, that we see coming up, everything that you'd think of when it comes to automation in any industry uh, is really needed in the farming sector. Mm-hmm. But more than that, um, you know, you have to take things that are easier to do in a factory setting, in a clean and sterile environment, then you have to deploy them in a very rugged rural agricultural setting. And a lot of things that go from the lab to the field just do not carry over. So, um, mm. so you know, everything from robotics to, uh, to sensing to vision, I think there's a heck of a lot of data science that needs to be coming in soon. Um, economics, especially, I think there's a, a gap, uh, certainly in s- some parts of the world, between the economic understanding of what happens in an orchard and, uh, and what, what actually comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all, all of these things have got, uh, have got space to grow for sure. Wow. I mean, so, so much opportunity. Um, and we were talking, as I've, I've mentioned, we were talking to a few people in agritech and they said uh, one that came up as well was uh, marketing. Yeah. Uh, and as these, you know, producers and um, even smaller farms use this tech, it means they can start competing with some of the bigger boys uh, yeah. because, they, you know, they don't have to worry about as much labor and, and yields will go up. So that's, you know, that's going to be a point, your point of differentiation differentiation will be your marketing so you know there's a whole kind of segment for people to to jump in there if, if you're creative as well definitely and there's a whole there's a whole separate part of the horse you know the apple sector and honestly i could talk about apples all day i think it's absolutely fascinating um but uh, some apples are uh, open for anyone to grow so you can grow gala and you can grow braben and that's fine mm. but some apple varieties are patented they're specific brands oh, really? by certain people so if you eat a pink lady apple yeah all pink ladies in the world are 
you know, attached to the Pink Lady Company. <laughs> uh, which was yeah pink ladies were made in australia i think uh, i know that jazz definitely was I, don't quote me on that i have to check um but the um yeah so if, if you grow pink ladies and you've been working quite closely with pink lady in, uh, in france um then they have some oversight over what comes out and they set the criteria for what it's got to be like and the quality which means that they can maintain the brand and it means although a pink lady apple may be more expensive you always know you're going to get a certain degree of quality with pink ladies anytime you buy one anywhere in the world wow um, and it's a, yeah it's, it's a whole fascinating sort of extra arm of the industry but something i um something i heard the other day which sorry just wasn't sharing fascinating things mm. uh that marketing piece is also very very relevant for what people are willing to buy uh, yeah. and we like to say you know the supermarkets are so strict about what they'll you know what quality of apples they'll take but the reason is that people will only eat a certain type of apple okay. uh, here in the uk we really like quite small apples something in the sort of uh, 59 to 65 millimeter category uh, but most other places in the world, on the continent and over in the US, they prefer a bigger apple. They, they want something more like 70 millimeters. And so we have to grow in different regions to meet the, uh, the demands of the local people. Uh, and it's, it adds a whole extra level of complexity to it, because if you grow an apple in the UK that's outside of that size band, it's worth two thirds as much as one that's, uh, that's in that size band. So yeah, real, real fascinating challenges. And I think something that we can definitely start addressing with marketing. So this might be a bit of a tough question, but uh, for you, you're, you're working in it now and we, we talked to some other people. What does the future of farming and agriculture and, and what you do look like in the next five years? I'm really glad you asked that as well. Um, I'll tell you specifically about us first and then we can sort of branch yeah. out into other bits of the sector. Great. So for Outfield, um, where we are right now is that a grower gets their own drone and it flies itself. They send us some imagery and we send them back on that. Now the... The next step for that for us is that there are now systems that are readily available which launch their own drones without you having to make any intervention at all. So you just put a box in the car park, plug it into the power and the internet, and it will launch your drone and the drone will go off and do its own survey. And we've got some trials coming up with that this uh, this coming season, actually, to make sure that's going to work. Mm. But if it does, I mean, it's, it's not cheap. It's something like £30,000 to get the box with the drone, but it's not prohibitively expensive especially for a commercial size grower and that would mean that you can have a drone out surveying by itself covering your entire estate every three days that for us means sorry go i suppose if you look at cost per survey yeah, actually that works out and it, it's a it's a game changer in terms of the service we can deliver because right now it relies on the grower to go out and our, mm. our growers tend to survey four or five times a season at the moment mm-hmm. but this way you could have well you know two a week all year round so you'd be up to about <laughs> 50 different surveys uh, and that means that you've got a time series development so you've got all these incredible data points with very rich data sets that we can build on so what we envisage is happening quite soon. We have a, a you know a lovely platform that's been very well received but we want to see growers you know wake up in the morning look on their pad and say, okay, uh, my drone surveys think that I should spray this orchard, this orchard, and this orchard. I agree with these two and they hit, hit go. And then a robotic sprayer will leave the shed and go and start spraying it. So cool. This, this is all technology that's not only within our grasp, but actually ready to deploy. You know, there's wow. uh, companies like Gus, the global unmanned sprayer system mm-hmm. over in the US, which does exactly that. It's a sprayer that can you know go around by itself and do precision spraying the right amount on every tree. We just need to tell it where to spray. And we also see, and this is where we think the ecosystem piece is so important, 
because it's not just outfield that's going to do this right it's uh alpha is good at what we do but there's a million things that we don't do so we also see that you know you'll then say i'm not sure about orchard three uh let me go and look at the original imagery so you'll pull up some of the images from the drone you have a look at it and then you say ah, i really want a second opinion on this you'll send it off to your agronomist who uh who does your you know plant science for you and say what do you think and then you can change the prescriptions get the right right uh, right amounts in the right orchards and by doing all this we can change the amount of production enormously right we can get a lot more fruit on the right size at the right mm. time the right quality um yeah and and, and have a perfect orchard, which we think can be completely hands-free up until harvesting. Now, for harvesting, there are already systems that people are building that do robotic harvesting with mm -hmm. robotic arms that can pick out apples off the tree. It's not there yet, but I don't think that's very far away. I think in five years' time, we'll start really seeing those coming into force. And I think that will slowly replace uh, you know, pickers in the field. Some people would worry about um, you know, replacing labor there, but we're really not worried about it because finding labor to do harvesting right now is yeah. really difficult. Um, it's not a job that anyone wants and you know, good luck trying to find somebody in the UK who wants to go and work in an orchard for, uh, for four months a year. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's where we see the technology that we're building going. And then as we're getting all these data sets from orchards and we're getting it around the world, uh, there's so much more that we can do with this, not just with the amazing data sets we've got looking more, you know, tree growth, tree health analysis, but also looking at, um, things like informing how the changing climate is affecting growth of of fruit so we can say you know the south of england now we've got you know 60 growers on the platform we're seeing that brabens are doing less well in the south than they are in the north and we start making more strategic decisions about these plants that are in the ground for 15 mm. years and so that kind of thing we really think again is a huge game changer and is so necessary um, not just to manage manage the immediate impacts of climate change where we don't know how much fruit we've got because it's not, you know, this year is unlike any other year we've had before, but also start getting in front of that problem and say, what are we going to be doing in five years time, 10 years time to manage this? So that, that's where we see our bit of the sector going. Outside of that, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's so much uh, very similar technology that's, uh, that's coming across all around the world. Um, and it ties into every aspect of farming, uh, particularly around uh, resource management, particularly around forecasting and prediction. Uh, but also the ancillary aspects, which are incredibly important, like uh, insurance, where you know some some growers, both in horticulture and in arable, are becoming uninsurable because of the changing climate, and so uh, because they're basing it on actuarial tables, which are no longer relevant because the climate has changed. So if we can now do what's called parametric insurance, where you look at the actual data from the ground and decide what the uh, actual likelihoods are of you having an effective yield this year then you can make insurance products that suit that. And again, I could spend hours talking about that, but it's less exciting. No, I, I uh, used but... to work in insurance, so don't oh, worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so actually, we, we've had some chats with uh, some fairly big insurers uh, in Poland, South Africa, and here in the UK about mm. agricultural insurance, particularly on the, uh, you know, on, on apple crops. But it's something mm. that the insurers, I mean, especially in South Africa, every insurer started out as an agricultural insurer. That's, that's where the sector began. So it's something okay. they really do care about. Uh, and it's a huge, huge business. So yeah, it's something, something we need to get right. I, I mean, you know, with all these industries, with the data that's becoming available to the uh, to the insurance industry, it's gonna gonna make it a lot easier for people to get insurance. It's gonna mm -hmm. make it a lot fairer, um, mm -hmm. and the payments will be actually linked to live data. You know, it, down the line. So what you what you're doing is is just, I mean, I love this stuff. I think it's really cool. 
Yeah, absolutely. With with my risk background, I think I think very similarly about it. That what we're really doing here is we're providing more clarity, less uncertainty, which is just reducing the risk for the grower. Yeah. And by doing that, we also reduce the risk for the insurer. It's just another tool in the same box. Um, you know, insurance is the last means of risk reduction, but there's a load of stuff that we can do upstream with that as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that we will be looking at in the future. Oh, uh, it's early days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Got to get the first bit right first. Um, so this all sounds fascinating, and, and people listening to this are thinking about going into agriculture. What are some things that you would suggest they could work on, whether it be a skill set or or some way to let's take your your company, for example. Mm. What would someone have to do for you to go, do you know what? I really want that person to come and work on the team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the the really obvious first thing is that there are some skill sets out there that are still very hard to uh to hire for particularly hire good people who are consistent and things like you know machine learning and uh, and that sort of thing are, are always going to be in high demand at least for the next couple of decades so um yeah if, if anyone's looking at you know career options that's a very good thing to train in uh but getting outside of that because that really isn't for everybody myself included i'm just not clever enough uh the um the other things that we've definitely seen and that we definitely hire based on are interest and um, I guess enthusiasm. And we've we've very much seen that you know we're, we're not so interested in you know did you get a Cambridge degree or did you you know have experience working? Mm. At what we really care about is are you passionate about the vision that we're trying to drive here? Do you care a lot about the industry? Because you know we found that people who do tend to produce better results and they tend to work better with people in the industry uh you can't you can't fake that you know, that, that genuine enthusiasm just comes across time and time again mm. uh, so that's one of the biggest things in terms of what people can actually do though um st- in the agritech space in particular start spending time contacting and reaching out to people who are in this sector try and do some work in the space try and get an understanding because you would be amazed as i said earlier how progressive some no, some growers are. Um, it's you know coming from a private equity background and before that oil and gas. Uh, those can be very tough people and very tough industries mm-hmm. to get into, and they can be a bit biased. If that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas we've largely found that the growers that we're talking to are quite ardently opposed to that. You know, they're, they're all very um, you know equal opportunities. They're all very you know where where the opportunities are, and so and they're they're keen on having young people, especially involved in the sector. People like the um, IAGRI, the Institute of Agricultural Engineers, have a whole program about trying to get young people involved in the sector. Uh, because going back over the last you know, 30, 40 years, it's not been something that young people have got into very readily. It's not been a very exciting or sexy space. And now it's becoming so again. Uh, I certainly think so. Um, so yeah, th- those, those are a few ideas of things that you can definitely be doing. Uh, mm. But yeah, I'd, I'd say just reach out to people, show enthusiasm, tell them what, you, uh, what you're trying to do. Don't be shy and, uh, and things will come. I, I think that, you know, it's a perfect answer because we always bang on about this show about uh, portfolios. Now, portfolio doesn't necessarily mean what it traditionally meant, you know, a marketing portfolio, whatever, but being able to actually showcase whether it be on LinkedIn or whatever social media you choose, some work you've done in a certain industry that you want to go into, whether that be work experience or, or placements or whatever, having something to actually showcase opposed to the traditional CVs. And I don't know your opinion on this, but for me, a CV is, is a certain way to, to actually not 
not get your foot through the door um (laughs) you know as as you know you're part of the startup world if somebody actually approached you and messaged you and said hey look this is what i've done or this is what i could add to your company that's Mm. gonna get them way further than a cv right yeah it will certainly get me to look at their cv right which is yeah. uh, is, is the most important thing um I, my view on cvs personally and everyone's different about this but i think a cv is how you demonstrate that you have the competence to do what it is but mm-hmm. that is that most half the battle right mm-hmm. uh, and th- there will be plenty of people out there who want a job who are also competent what you need to then demonstrate is you're the right fit for what we're trying to do and as you say the you know coming across enthusiastically getting in touch and showing what you want to do and how that fits with what we want to do is great the last thing that i'd also say and i think it's worth sharing because mm. i've seen this a lot with uh, you know people job hunting in my personal life as well as uh, as well as coming to our company mm. is to just manage your expectations from the start that it might take 50 contacts it might take 10 interviews it might take a lot more than that in the current job market but there you know there will be something out there so just go into it as a challenge go into it trying to learn in every interview and believe me if you go into an interview and try and learn as much as you can from it and take it as a you know as a challenging experience as opposed to trying to get a job out of it you'll come across better anyway and you win regardless so that's yeah. just just my personal opinion. No, great advice. Um, well, Jim, I could literally talk to you for hours about this. I think what you're doing is uh, is fascinating. I, I love the space. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on. If anybody wants to reach out to you um, and see what you're doing or what your company's doing, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, so we've got a website, outfield.xyz. Uh, there's an inquiries contact form on there. Just ping us a note, uh, put my name on it, say where you heard from us. And yeah, if you've got any questions, uh, always happy to have a chat. It'd be, uh, be great to hear. Amazing. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much, Daniel. All the best.